This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. The little book of Ruth uh, in the Old Testament really, really sets up the life of David, but also is a brilliant book in itself. This is a story about a great woman uh, called Ruth. Incidentally, my sister's called Ruth, and the other star of the story here is Naomi. And my wife's called Naomi, so there's no intention by the names used to anybody. Okay, so we're going to go into Ruth's story. The book of Ruth was written probably by by the prophet Samuel. We'll find out later that Samuel was the last of the judges, the last of the leaders in Israel before they had a king. And Samuel uh, is the one who uh, anoints with oil David to become king. And we'll pick up that in a few weeks. Uh, But the, the suggestion is that he wrote this book to show God's hand in David's lineage. So the book ends with Ruth was uh, married to Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, who's obviously Israel's greatest king, apart from Jesus. So in one sense, Ruth's story is a great story because it, on the surface it feels like some bad stuff happens. But it's a great story as well because it's a love story and it's a great story because it shows a, a tenacious woman in a world very much where it, uh, things were stacked against women. But also, whether you're a woman or a guy, it, it asks you these kind of questions. So if you've ever asked, where is God when tragedy hits your life, this is a book for you. If you've ever thought, is it worth living the Christian life in the toughest of times, this book is for you. If you've ever thought, God, are you still in charge of what's going on? This book is for you. And if you've ever thought, can anything good come out of your rather ordinary life, this book is for you. I can relate to some or all of those at different times. And most of the time you feel your life's rather ordinary and uh, unspectacular. But actually what, in the middle of this rather ordinary story, God is going to do spectacular things. So we're going to journey through this maybe two weeks or three weeks. I don't know. Let's pray and get to work. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the way that you so carefully record the everyday lives of people in your Bible and the way that behind the scenes sometimes and up front miraculously at other times we see you working. Lord, on this book where it seems it's just so happened, it's just kind of circumstance and coincidence, Lord, I pray that we'd see your hand. I pray that we'd learn discipleship lessons from this book and you teach us about your great story that we're caught up in. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Ruth is, uh, starts in the darkest of times. It's kind of the, Israel's kind of dark ages uh, in the time of Judges. In the time of Judges, I know when we did the series, the big stories of God or the stories that really matter, uh, 
it said in those days in Judges, it says, Israel had no king and all the people did was right in their own eyes. So this is kind of like not a great time for the people of Israel. They've come out of, the, uh, out of Egypt through the, dead, uh, through the dead sea, the Red Sea, through the desert, into the promised land with Joshua. And now it's kind of like they're there and things don't go really well. They don't really follow God. There's this rhythm of they do good. Uh, sorry, they do bad, and then God raises up a hero, like Gideon or something, and then he saves the people for a while, and then they slip back into mucking about, getting it wrong, sinning, and then God raises up a hero, and that's the kind of pattern. And and the whole sense of is that, that, that Israel's meant to kind of trust in God and put God at the front and center, and they just don't. And, and so that's the kind of context we're in. So I'm just going to read a few verses, talk, and then we'll go through. We'll do chapter 1 today. In the days when the judges ruled, so this is verse 1, chapter 1, Ruth. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, you know where that is, uh, together with his wife and two sons, left uh, for a while to live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. Now, it's interesting, actually, that at this time, uh, the, the people of, uh, of Israel would, would have kind of known who, what caused famine. So please don't draw, kind of, if you're doing geography A-level uh, and you're doing the food module, you know, don't draw the conclusion here. I don't think it will go down well in your exam. But actually, in Israel, at this time, what caused famine? Any answers? No rain is the obvious environmental answer, Jotham. But is there a bigger answer? Obviously, if, does anybody know why there might have been famine in the land? Why was there blessing and why was there famine? Okay, let me give you a clue. It says in, um, it says in Leviticus 26, God says, If you walk in my ways and observe my commandments and do what I've asked, then I'll give you the rains in their season and the land will produce its crops and the trees of field will produce their fruit and you will eat their fill and live securely in the land. So basically when, when the people of Israel did well in these times, there was food. And when the people of Israel walked away from God, there's famine. So that was the kind of picture. And Actually, if there was famine, that meant that, that, that God was judging the people. And so what happened is there's a famine in the land because the people have just forgotten God. The people of Bethlehem, it's interestingly, uh, the word Bethel means house and ham means bread. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. So it's rather ironic here that in the middle of Bethlehem, the house of bread, there is no bread. And obviously when famine comes, and this is still true today, when famine comes, it hits the uh, the poorest hardest. Uh, So we don't know... Uh, how poor uh, Elimelech was, but he, I, I suspect he probably had a little slice of land, a small amount of land, maybe a small holding, because in Israel at that time, which was rather unique for the areas of uh, the countries of the near Middle East, is everybody had a bit of land. The reason why that was was because when God gave them the land, they said, everybody is going to have a piece of land. It's not going to be that the king's just going to own all the land and you're all going to work for him. Actually, like other nations, no, everybody's going to get their own land. The only people who didn't get their own land were the Levites and they lived off the tithes into the temple. So every tribe had their own land and every person and family had their own land. And, and so in that sense, your kind of sense of identity 
who you are was in your land, that you owned land. So you would say, my name's Elimelech of Bethlehem. Or, and you, that you, you were, you were referenced, you, who you were was not by what we do. So today we say, oh, my name's Mark and I'm a teacher. You know, that's what we kind of do, isn't it? Well, we name ourselves, our identity is very much in our job. Um, you know, there's other ways that, that we express our identity. But for, for, for people of Israel, their identity was in their land. And so therefore, when the rains failed and their land didn't produce crops, that was really difficult because it wasn't just a case like in kind of the Sahelian belt now, the southern, uh, southern Sahara, that people just say, well, we'll just move on. We'll just become nomadic or move. No, these were settled people and their identity was their land. It wasn't just an easy thing to move out of the land, to just lift, drift off the land. So for a while then, Elimelech and Naomi stays while famine is. This is famine is not just a one-year famine. It's like a progressive famine that's getting worse and worse. And they have two kids, two boys. And uh, interestingly, in those days, because infant mortality rates were so high that they didn't uh, name the kids until they were weaned because so many babies died. So they wouldn't name them uh, until after they were weaned, until there was this chance that they'd survive. And so in one sense, the kind of names that they got were often, the names that people got were often uh, related to what they were like as a kind of tiny little toddler uh, or when they were just weaned. So, so actually the, the, the sons are called Malon, which means weak or sick, and Kileon, which means frail. Clearly these boys had grown up yeah, so imagine being at school, they say, right, yeah, uh, Matt here, Richard here, weak here, frail here. You know, that, imagine being called kind of weak or frail. But obviously these boys had, had grown up in the famine and uh, they, they were weak and frail. Elimelech's name actually is interesting. It means, my God is the king, which is a great name to have, isn't it? Uh, frail here, weak here, my God is the king? Yes, here. <laughs> You know, and, and, and Naomi means what? Well, not my translation, but although it is true for you, pleasant. It actually means pleasant, although you are beautiful, Naomi. It means pleasant or sweet, like sweetheart. It means like my honey. Yeah? It's like honey. Hello, honey. You're my honey. So we've got my God is king and honey, and then two kids, frail and weak. Okay, and basically, I don't think any of us have experienced starvation. But I guess we might have faced the kind of grinding challenges that are a bit like a famine, that, that gradually wear you down, that gradually force you to, to the edge, that gradually put you in a position where you think, oh my word, this is attritional. Something's happening to me in my life that's eating away at me. And we kind of experience that. You might have been in uh, a situation where financially you just felt it's never quite enough. There are people in this church who, 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 who if you knew their financial situation, you think, man, it's really hard for them. You know, they get low wages, they're struggling to pay their bills. It's just difficult. It's kind of where it wears them down. There are people uh, in this church uh, who's, who've, who've got, uh, got family members who, who are just not well. And it's just attritional year after year after year. Maybe some of us uh, have uh, experienced uh, sickness or something that just wears us down. Maybe... We experience that sense of thinking, well, you know, I'm a single man or a single woman. I got married at 31. I can relate to, to that sense. But, but, you know, you feel through your 20s, oh, when am I going to find someone? 
when am I going to find someone? When's somebody going to be foolish enough to put up with me? You know, whatever. When am I going to find someone? And it can just wear you down and it leaves you kind of emotionally uh, weak and frail and sick. And sometimes that inf- impacts you spiritually as well. It's not that we're separate people. Sometimes if you feel emotionally low, emotionally drawn, emotionally worn out, emotionally wasting away, as it were, that, that affects you spiritually. It's not that your spiritual stuff just isn't in a box and you can feel, man, our life's tough, but I'm doing okay spiritually. Often the one flows into the other. It should be that how you feel, how you, how, you know, what, what Tara brought about, that God is in charge, should flow into our emotional state. But most often it's, man, life's tough, difficult, and it flows into, God, are you really in charge? And so, so that we live with those things, you know, marriage, difficulty, stress, uh, loss of dreams. I thought life was going to be different. A sense of disappointment. All those kind of things gradually are like a famine and they starve you of hope and they take your uh, uh, faith away. And what happens is Elimelech, as, as, as family, is kind of feeling that physically, but it's also happening emotionally. I think emotionally they're starting to ask the question, what question are you starting to ask? If you're a, a kind of an Israelite in, in the time of the judges before the king, you live in the land and there's a famine, what question are you asking? You're asking the same question as you ask when life's tough for you now. Why is it like this? Where's God? What's, what's happening? Has God abandoned us? What's the problem? Now, I don't know what, what, when you ask yourself that question, when difficulties come and challenges come, you ask yourself that question, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to God? Why is this bad stuff happening? Why is it a challenge? How do you respond to that? It's often interesting because I know there's probably a spiritual response and there's a kind of, not unspiritual, but a kind of pragmatic response. Or we think all that, and, and not that the two are separate, please look at me. But, but the spiritual response would be what? If you feel God, there's a situation, what would be the one, what would you be your spiritual response? It might be good to praise God. It might be good to encounter God. It might be good to to speak faith, it might be good to pray, in some way to lay hold of God and say, God, what's happening? That's what the Psalms are all about. They Time and time again, the Psalms are all, Lord, my life's a mess. Why is all my enemies around me? This is not supposed to be how it is. And he's, David's giving it, come on, God. And then there's, and in the mix of it is, God, but you're so amazing, so wonderful, so terrific. And he finds the um, interaction between who God is and, and our emotions. We find that in prayer and encounter. And so that's really important. And maybe that's what Elimelech and his family should have done. But actually, what Elimelech does, he doesn't act like, my God is the king. He acts like, I'm in charge. What does he do? Let's read uh, a little bit uh, further on. I think we read it, actually. They, they decide to do what? They decide to move. They say, there's famine here. We're going to move. We're going to move from from Israel, from Bethlehem, and we're going to move to a place called Moab. It's only 50 miles away. So this is not like some big kind of trans-regional uh, famine. This is a little famine that's affecting maybe Israel because of their not walking with God. And Moab, you think, well, why have they got food? Moab's this kind of adulterous, uh, idolatrous, kind of immoral nation, but yet they've got food. And sometimes you can do that. There's a psalm that says, Psalm 73, says, well, when I consider the, 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 how people are living, I, I look at the righteous and they seem to be having a hard time. It seems to be difficult. It doesn't seem to be easy. And then I look at the, I look at the unrighteous and they've got money. They've got time. Everything seems to be great. And he's, the psalmist says, as for me, my foot almost slipped when I considered the wicked. 
Why is it so easy for them? Why so hard for me? And Elimelech almost kind of puts it in the scale and he says, well, we're going to just, we've got to make a decision here, honey. Literally, that's what his name, her name is. We're, you know, we've got to, we've got to ask the question, what are we going to do? What, what, what are we going to do? And he comes up and I can imagine he sits, doesn't tell the kids, but he sits them down and says, I think we should move. I think we should move. And, and, and it, it, it's a massive decision for, for him to say his family should move. Because in one sense, they're moving not just, oh, just around the corner. What they're saying is, this is the land that God gave us. This is the promised land. This is my inheritance. And I walk away from that. This is the place where God is worshipped in Shiloh, the tabernacle, the temple of the tent of God was in Shiloh, which is about 35 miles away from Bethlehem, and they're walking away from being able to worship there. They walk away from their people. They're saying, these are my people in Bethlehem. They're my family, my friends, the ones we've got sharing inheritance. We're part of the same family, the same tribe of Judah. We'll walk away from them. And I can imagine Naomi saying to Elimelech, why are we going to Moab? They're idol worshippers. Our God is gracious and compassionate, the provider, the mighty God. Their God was called the destroyer. It's a fish God. He was called the destroyer, the subduer. They used to sacrifice their children in the fire to this God. Why are we going to go from this place where our God is gracious and compassionate to, to this place? Why are we going to make that decision? But actually, I can imagine Elimelech saying, well, what good has it done us to be close to the tabernacle? What good has it done us, as it were, to be in church? What good has it done us to be God's people? What value is it to living in God's land if there's no crops? Why are we starving to death? And he makes the decision, why should we fear God when God's, our God's killing us? Why should we worry about this God, the destroyer? Let's move. And I think that, that we actually can make that decision. We make that decision. In churches, people make that decision. In this church, in this little uh, church where you know, there's not many people over a period of time, people have made that decision. They've considered life here, as it were, in, in, in God's land, in God's people, in God's church, and then they've looked at something else over there and said, no, I'm having that. I'm having that relationship, or I'm having that. And, the, and they make that kind of move, move, as it were, to Moab. They say, oh, well, what's the good here? This isn't great. My, I've got pressure. Church don't care for me. What good is church? I come to church. I don't meet with God. The worship feels a bit... You know, what's the point of that? It's a big effort to connect with people. What's the point of that? And they gradually say, no, actually, I'm going to find my solution. I'm going to find my solution over here. And we go off to Moab. We go off to Moab. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Because actually, when Elimelech goes off to Moab, it doesn't get better. I could tell you story after story, even in my life. I had a situation where I think, I'm going to go and live in Moab. It was Bath, actually. (laughs) But, you know, I I lived in Moab. I I did the kind of detestable things, as it were, that people did in Moab, because I thought, I don't want God's people. And actually, while I'm in Moab, while I'm doing all this stupidity, was my life great? No. It wasn't. And we find in Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that it doesn't work out great for them. And they went, it says, to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. 
They married Moabite women, one called Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. It's just tragedy after tragedy. Now, the reality is, there's no guarantee where they'd stay that tragedy wouldn't hit them. But actually, sometimes we choose what is easy, what looks comfortable, what looks like no pressure, and tragedy comes. Tragedy comes. They move to pagan Moab, and tragedy comes. Naomi is left as a vulnerable widow. The situation is, in that time, if, um, if, you were a, if you're a woman, you, you are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, that's probably still true in some parts of, of kind of uh, uh, economically less developed countries. If you're a woman, you are very vulnerable. I mean, it's true if you're a poor woman in this country. You're very vulnerable. You're vulnerable because you probably, you may have had no income. In that time, land was income. She had no land. She had no men who could work for her. She, she's a kind of abandoned, uh, with, and, and all she, there's three of them just kind of there. No one to care for her. No land, no money. She's incredibly vulnerable. Let's just read on. There's a, a longer section then. So it says, verse six, when Naomi heard that in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, so they've kind of gone a little journey and they've said, oh, we're going to go back. Actually, now with this food, this has worked out well. We go back. And actually... That is a, 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 a biblical position, isn't it? To say, I've been so stupid. What am I doing over here in Moab when actually there's food in my father's house? Does anyone know a story that sounds a bit like that? The prodigal son. He says, he goes off to a far off country, spends his money on women and wild living and whatever. And then he turns and thinks, why did I leave? They've got food in the father's house. I'm going to go back. And that is my story, and that's so many of our stories. Let's return home. But she returns home with her daughters-in-law, who are from Moab. They're not from God's people. It says, when her daughter-in-laws, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place she didn't live in, set out on the road to take them back. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you, you'll find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, said goodbye, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, no, 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 we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband even if there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, will you wait until they grow up? Will you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. Naomi's returning to to Bethlehem, she's going back to Bethlehem, but actually she's a broken woman, isn't she? She's not the same woman as, as left. She, it, she says 
She's bitter. She's bitter. She says later on that she's empty. It's like, what has it all been? What's my life all been about? This is a tragedy. This woman has been stripped of everything. And she's just kind of... And life can do that to us. We can just think, what's it all come to? These three women were without a family, without husbands, without fathers. They, were, they could have easily been raped, enslaved, or just starved to death. But the women were committed to each other. And I think there's, interestingly, about men and women in relationship, I think that women often are better at empathy. They're better at kind of putting them, themselves in other, other people's shoes. They're better at understanding. And these women have got this kind of deep empathy for each other. There's this kind of, they are the kind of classic three. They're, 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 they're related uh, to, to, to each other. They've got this deep empathy. And um, Naomi, I think she cares for them. Now, she makes an interesting comment, doesn't she? What does she say? She says, why don't you go back? Don't come with me to, to Bethlehem. Why don't you go back to your own land to find husbands? Why does that seem a good idea? You can answer because I feel that you're all a bit sleepy this morning. Why, why, did, why did that seem like a good idea? She actually tells you in the text. Why is it a good idea for, for Ruth, uh, to Naomi to say to Ruth and Oprah, why don't you go back? Why is that a good idea? They're not going to get husbands in Israel. They're foreigners. They won't get husbands in Israel. Nobody's going to marry them in Israel. They're going to be penniless. They're going to be potentially uh, abused. They're, 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 you know, there's, there's apparently nothing good in Israel for them. And if they go home to Moab, there's a chance they might get husbands and they might be safe. But Naomi's forgot to factor in something, hasn't she? What has she forgot to factor in? God's ability to provide. So it's a bit like saying, imagine this, it's a bit like saying, imagine you've got two friends and they're struggling with a situation, maybe it's an illness, maybe it's some abuse, some situation from the past, maybe it's they want a boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe they're looking for a job, and you're talking to them and you're just walking along or maybe you're down, down out having a beer or chatting away and you say to them, actually I can't see any point in you coming and being with God's people. I don't see any point in you being with God's people. You're much better to go back to that place where God's not worshipped, that idol worshippers, and find some hope there. It's what's called anti-evangelism, isn't it? Yeah? Rather than, no, no, no. Actually, here you'll find life, and here you'll find God, and here you, God can provide. They say, no, no, why don't you go back there? And I know people who are like that. Why has Naomi become an anti-evangelist? What's happened in the story that makes her think, it just is all bad. She's lost hope. There's disaster has happened to her. There's, she's lost faith. She's lost a sense that God can do anything. And so she says, well, you're better off going there. But you can start there. Well, has God, has God got anything for us here? Is there anything that's good here? You want a girl? You want a big one? Oh, maybe you just... Oh, in fact, why don't you just... You might find more fun if you go see Coldplay. You know, the worship's better. I don't know, but we can do this kind of anti-evangelism thing where actually because we're so hurt and we're so damaged, we can't find anything good to say about about what God might do. And we lose hope. And Naomi's become bitter. 
Instead of being sweet, she's become bitter. And she says, just go. I've got nothing for you. It's really bad for me and God is against me. So why would he be with you? But we get, we get this story, don't they say, no, 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 we're going to stay with you. We'll stay with you. We're, you know, we're girls together. We'll work it out. We'll kind of hang together. We'll be together. And, and both the girls uh, say to, to, to Naomi, we'll, we'll be with you. We'll hang with you. But Naomi says, no, 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 you're just wrong. I know you've been very nice to me and trying to look after me. I'm an older person. And, but no, just go and just look after yourself. And it's not really until kind of halfway through this first chapter that we actually get Ruth, our hero, speaks. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And then she says this brilliant thing. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And brilliantly, amazingly, she says, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. So she makes a promise and then she puts a kind of curse on herself, as it were. May the Lord deal with me be ever so severely if even death separates you from me. It's amazing. They use that in weddings, don't you? They use that kind of, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people, my people. You do that kind of sense of, no, we're in this together. We're going to connect together. Your family's going to be my family. I know as you go on later on, you think, man, your family. No, me, your family. How would your family? But actually you say, no, your people, my people, and you, and you do that connection. But, but actually this isn't just Naomi just saying, I'm going to be friends. This is Naomi's becoming a Christian. This is Naomi becoming a God follower because she clings to Naomi, but she also clings to Naomi's God. Naomi's faith is bold and outspoken. It means leaving her own family and land. Israelites didn't like Moabites. So she's stepping right into the middle of racial tension. She's moving to a place where she's probably going to be hated, where she's going to have no family, potentially, no friends, no job, no home. And it means, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness because Naomi's got no man to give. There's a custom in Israel that actually if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're a married woman and your husband died, that the brother, your husband's brother, just work that one through, your husband's brother would marry you so you wouldn't be without a land, without a name, without whatever. And, but yet there's no hope of that. But yet still Ruth makes this famous vow, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Ruth makes that commitment. Why? Because she loves Naomi. But there's actually something deeper. Why does she say, your God and my God? Because I think that in the good times... Naomi must have told her about this amazing God who set the people out of slavery, who set his love on them and brought them to himself with eagle's wings, with mighty miracles, and who made bring them to this land of flowing with milk and honey. Perhaps she talked about God's unfailing love, his goodness, his fatherly love. Maybe she talked about all those things. And she contrasted that with this Moabite God who's, who's grasping and angry and destroyer. And, and she thought, maybe how Naomi lo- lived. Maybe the way she saw Naomi's, Naomi's marriage. Maybe she saw the way she looked after her family, looked after her kids. Maybe she, they felt how she loved her daughter-in-laws. She loved the foreigners. Maybe even in the midst of despair, she was always sweet, always pleasant. Maybe joyful in her God. Maybe she saw that. 
And she says, I'm going to have Naomi's God. I'm not going to have this God of Moab. It's amazing, actually, that John Piper says this in his sermon on this topic. says, Ruth trusts Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. Here we have a picture of God's ideal woman. Faith in God that sees beyond present bitter setbacks. Freedom from the insecurities and comforts of the world. Courage to venture into the dangerous and unknown. Radical commitments to the relationships appointed by God. And then he says, oh, that the church was full of that kind of woman, of that kind of man. So here's Naomi, she's saying, actually, I could go back, uh, uh, Ruth, I could go back. And I could have a life that seemed okay and seemed safe and seemed buttoned down. But actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk on God. I'm going to take a risk that actually that, that there is a that, that God's going to provide that, that God's the one who's going to be my security that actually that although he might have promised me lots of happiness that because it hasn't happened to Naomi she's not been happy all the time but I'm going to trust God I'm going to trust God I'm going to I'm going to believe that He's good and loving and kind and in fact Naomi prays may the loving kindness of God be with you and I think that that. I think I must have got in Ruth's heart. She thought, actually, I want to be with a God that's loving and kind. One of the things that's so so tragic is that that we're just weighing it up. Oh, well, where am I going to be happiest? Where's going to be easiest? Where's my dreams most likely to be fulfilled? Where am I most likely to have food? Is it going to be out here in the world? Or am I going to be in God's people? And it's not like you can have God without his people. You can't have God without his church. You can't have, yeah, you're, now may I go to your, your people, my people. You're gonna, you can't be my God, but I'll keep my own people. You, re, you become connected to a new people. Let's finish here. Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem. It says, verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Why do you think they asked that? Because her life had been so hard, so difficult. She's just a broken woman. And it's interesting that actually, that she realizes that. She realizes I'm just, I'm emptied. She said, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And in one sense, that kind of grumbling at God that God's done this bad thing, actually isn't great for Naomi. But actually, what is good? What is a really good place for Naomi is to realize, I'm now empty. Elimelech and Naomi have tried to work out what the right solution is and make their plans and make their choices. And actually, she needed to come back to to, to God's place and say, actually, I'm empty without you. I'm empty without you. 
And I know that's my story in my life, that actually, that I went away to Moab and did my stuff, and I came to a point where I thought, actually, I'm empty without you. What, do I, what did I bring to God when I came back to him? Nothing. What do you bring to God when you become a Christian? You bring nothing. You bring, my life's been bad or broken or I've been hurt or been damaged. When you've been away from God and you come back to God, all you can say, all I bring up is my mess. All I bring is my mistakes. All I bring is my sin and my disasters and my mess ups. And God doesn't say, well, you better get off to Moab and sort yourself out and then come back when you're sorted. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's like the prodigal son, isn't it? It says, I'll arise and go back to my father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that might be you. You might have emotionally or properly or really you might have said, I've been in Moab. Maybe you've not moved yet. Maybe you're a bit like Elimelech and you're saying, you know, over there life's good. But here it's not so good. God's forgotten me. God's abandoned me. You stop praying. You stop trusting God. You've started to, I want to be over there. Maybe you've moved over there. Maybe you're pretending you're living here, but actually you've moved over there and you've, you've put your hope in some other plan or some other strategy or you've done these other things. But you know, there's something about when you hear there's food there. That's where I'm be. That's where I should be. And, and there's just so, it's almost like Naomi's instinct is, I want to go home. I want to go home. And I think home is one of the best words in the Bible. Isn't it? home. Because we lived, and I've said this many times, that we, live, we can live in a far off country thinking it's going to be better there. But actually home with God is where we're supposed to be. And Naomi comes to this point, I've got nothing. But actually it's not true, is it? Because she's not come back empty. What's she come back with? She's come back with Ruth. She's come back with an amazing woman of faith. She's come back with, I've come back with this woman. I've come back with this penniless, poor, foreign woman. But she's so incredibly precious because she's seen that God is the best. And she's going to be her saviour. Naomi's had it. But, but Ruth is going to say, no, together, we'll stand together and we'll find God. And I love it. We'll finish here. It says, at the end of the passage, it says, as they returned to Bethlehem, it, the barley harvest was just beginning. And it's almost like, I mean, I didn't ask the graphic designer to do a sunrise. Sunset, thinks the sunrise, better. I didn't ask him to do that. I said, can you just do a woman in cornfields? And he's very good, is Mark, and uh, who does it for me. And I, I just think that there's this sense where what is hap- what's happened is it was a famine. There was nothing in the fields. It was a complete disaster. They've come back. But actually, there's a sense of God's blessing is just around the corner. Over the horizon, the father's running back to her, to Naomi and to Ruth, running back. There's a marvelous saviour who's lurking just over the horizon. And if you know the story, and I better tell you, just in case you don't come back next week, because I know you, actually there's this brilliant saviour who's going to save her. There's this wonderful redeemer, this wonderful man, Boaz, who's going to save her. And from all this disaster and all this terribleness, that actually when they come empty to God, God has an amazing plan for you. He's going to take this poor widow, this foreigner, and he's going to place her in the line of the kings. 
And I think for you, if, if you've had hurts and disappointments and famine and you've felt uh, uh, away from God, God wants to say to you, hey, even if you're empty, come back. Come back, because over her the horizon, there's a beautiful, beautiful Redeemer. Let's... Um... For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Let's worship together, guys. Stand with me.